This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've become a director of Chelsea Football Club. Chelsea have won the Champions League. We went to Champions League games. You, you meet with the directors of the other club for dinner the night before. I, I, I won't pretend that it's not also satisfying to kind of be on the team playing. We don't want to let the fans down. Get, getting to know Frank Lampard, somebody that I thought I'd never even meet. One of the stipulations in my contract uh, as a, a, a director of Chelsea Holdings. My mother was arrested at the age of 10. My father was arrested at the age of 10. The gulag is a phrase, but I didn't know what it was either, even though I knew my grandfather had been in it. There were a number of reasons why the Nazi story is a lot better known. One of the reasons being that they obviously lost and the Soviets won. That protected the Soviets from um, scrutiny and everything that happened in the Nuremberg trials. The Soviets were the prosecutors and all of those crimes that the Nazis committed, they committed too. The main thing that I do really is working for the Times newspaper. When you get an invitation, uh, imagine this invitation was tomorrow. If it was tomorrow, would you feel it was a good use of your time? And would you want to say yes to it? So what's the job of Danny Finkelstein? Well, I've got more than one job, I suppose. Um, uh, my, I regard my mainstay, the main thing that I do really is working for the Times newspaper where I've previously been an executive editor and um, I have uh, been a columnist for a long time uh, and I still um, centre myself there a lot of the time, um, regard that as my sort of primary uh, role. Um, but about uh, when I got a peerage 10 years ago, I went off the staff and um, since then I've taken on a couple of other things. So I'm a uh, director of a company called Upmost, uh, which is a financial services company uh, dealing primarily with, with I mean, I won't complicate everyone with all the details, but sort of a funds in runoff uh, for those people who have a uh, knowledge of these kind of areas. Um, and more recently, um, I've become a director of Chelsea Football Club, which is actually, although I'm a non-executive director, takes up a lot of time because it's got quite a lot of uh, executive functions Link to it. Um, and talk to us about the different jobs at the Times in terms of it's always intrigued me all the different roles that are there because you've got comment editors, feature editors, an executive editor, as you just mentioned. How's it all sort of structured? What are the different roles you've done? You know, which ones did you enjoy most, well, etc.? The, the way to think of it really is that newspapers don't only sell uh, content, they sell editing. Um, so um, when you read a newspaper, uh, you are reading a choice that's been made for you of all the things that have happened in that day that people might be interested in or been happening in that week, um, curated, um, checked for accuracy, uh, provided with a headline that gives, you know, that intrigues, but also gives a summary of some of the content. Uh, that work I think that is one of the primary things that we sell. In other words, on the internet, for example, there's plenty of information you can get, but you can only get editing from a newspaper or from a, a, a curated product. Uh, so a very important part of what we do is editing. And so there are two type, different types of jobs at the Times, one of which is that job of editing the curation, and the other is the job of provision of the material itself. Uh, and, I, and I guess you could see that the staff has been kind of divided between those. I had a somewhat odd career, which is that I I made tracks down both of those routes at the same time. So I guess 
a usual thing will be for someone after a while to specialize in becoming an editor or a content provider um and um i they, they almost everyone starts as some sort of content provider some sort of journalist but then they will get into more and more editing and the most senior people in the paper the editor the executive editor um the deputy editor those people or the you know the comment page editor uh those people will all have jobs that are um purely editing and they don't write anything and i was somewhat odd so i was the comment editor while i had my own column uh, i was the um executive editor and still wrote uh, for the paper so uh, it was unusual and then and then when the um the peerage arrived and i wanted to accept it uh, it was agreed that i should carry on my writing work but stop the editing because it became less appropriate for me to edit to to sort of curate other people's content um so the the jobs i've had in the paper um i've had the job uh, uh the senior ones worth mentioning um uh, after i'd been a, a leader writer when i arrived at the paper and contributed to features and various other things i became um eventually the comment editor on the paper that is the person who was editing all the opinion columns um you you give a bit of guidance to the uh editor as to who you think we should have writing columns um but an awful lot of that job is just making sure the columnists don't write on the same topic um mm. that that uh, they're not going to get the paper sued you know in other words that it's been appropriately passed to the lawyer um you've given it the right headline uh, you you have a right variety you don't have big areas where nobody's written on a column on it for several days even though it's the biggest story of the moment uh, all those kind of things um and I, I did that for a while, and then uh, I was asked to be the chief leader writer because James Harding, when he became editor of the paper, wanted to move the leaders to page two. Uh, he was going to put more, mm. much more, did put much more resources into writing the leaders because he thought, and I think correctly, more people would then read them. And I was put in charge of that, and that was a combination of writing leaders and also kind of leading the team. And maybe of all the jobs I've had, that may have been the most fun. Uh, the job there was to create an identity for the paper that was in line with the editor's uh, wishes to and to think about where you were going to go probably between elections and try to work out how to take the steps towards it so that you didn't you weren't writing things one year that were completely inconsistent the next to have an idea of where you stood on uh, where the paper stood on all the issues that the big issues and so you weren't contradicting yourself um you know we did do that in one or two if someone goes on a holiday a newspaper can contradict itself and it and we did you know assisted dying we contradicted ourselves and i know before i arrived the paper contradicted itself on drug use as well um and you know you want to avoid doing that that's what the the chief leader writer is for and then the paper went behind a paywall and i was asked to be the executive editor in charge of that so before i um worked in politics which was the job i had immediately before i went into the newspaper i'd actually previously been a journalist on trade newspapers and my air my big area was the internet i've got an msc in systems analysis um so i um and it was partly my father had been involved in some of the earliest computers and he said to me you know computing and system analysis and digitalization is where everything's going get getting ahead of it and I did and it was very useful at this point um, because when we went behind the paywall you didn't really need to have a total understanding of the of the technology but it helped a lot when you were dealing with um, you know the the sort of art staff and other other people who were working on the design and working on the systems upgrade to allow you to do things you wanted to do so I did that for a period and then I stopped doing that um, at the time when I was offered the peerage, which also coincided actually with James Harding leaving the paper. So for John Witherow, um, who became the editor then, I worked as uh, an, an associate editor, which I joke always a joke means I was associate of nobody and edited nothing. And what? how does a newspaper kind of set its culture? Because it must be, you know, it's obviously a demanding place to work because you've got a daily product that you need to get out. But... How do you sort of sort of step out of that? How do newspapers do that? Well, I mean, any any uh, newspaper, any organisation, the culture is very much set at the top. Um, and I've been fortunate to work in 
environments where kind of uh, shouting and booing boorish behavior isn't um tolerated the times has very been a very civilized place it's dynamic enough so it's not it doesn't pretend to itself it's a you know a university or um a seminar uh it, you know it's, it's dynamic enough but it's but it's but relationships are pretty friendly um and the editor sets the uh sets the culture it is quite a pressured environment and i i one of my roles when i was exec well actually when i was executive editor in fact before that when i was chief lead writer was to edit the paper on a weekend um and on a sunday and you know it's an extraordinary responsibility because you've got to pick what's on the front page and all those sort of things the editor the actual you know the actual editor as it were is there to consult um but still you have to make these big choices um and i experienced how incredibly um pressured it can be in those environments but i don't i think you know people have just got to control their stress when they're in those environments and i i i usually manage it yeah uh completely and um and that's one of, I, I wanted to talk about your book um that you've published this year um Hitler, Stalin, and my family, which is just the most kind of extraordinary reading that I've I've done this year. And one of the things that I was struck by during it was how hard it was to kind of listen to it. Um, I was listening to it on on audiobooks, and I couldn't listen to more than about half an hour because it, at times it's such a difficult listen. I just wondered with you and your personality which you describe as Pollyanna-ish in one of your books like how how do you keep such a positive mindset when you're writing something like that or is that even possible yeah so first of all you're right to remind me that while I've given you the jobs that I'm employed by someone else to do I didn't mention actually something that's been um, really a very large use of my time over the last or three or four years which is the writing and then the promotion of the book and by the way anyone who's doing a book should know that you know writing and editing and everything the book is one thing but promoting it that's quite something else it's been really exhausting um I'm, I, I mean it's been very satisfying but it's been very exhausting um so uh, it's interesting i i think my attitude to uh to life is definitely partly dna Okay, uh, it's just who I am, and I think it was true because one of the things I puzzle over in the book is how did my parents ended up being end up being such positive, such positive people, uh, considering what had happened to either of them, considering you know the, the Holocaust and my mom and what happened my dad's experience uh, in in with the Soviets. So he, uh, and I think it was partly their character, as simple as that. But it was also a a deliberate view that they had that a sense of proportion is really important and that nothing else that could happen to them would ever be as bad as that or to us and I, the only time in, in my childhood i ever remember getting into trouble and it wasn't that bad even then but trouble was when i said before dinner once that i was starving mm. um and my mother was really cross about it i just remember being startled because it was obviously just a casual statement um and um she was generally so uh, gentle um but i i think that um that offended her sense of a uh, sense of proportion and generally i see people a lot of time both arguing with each other and behaving in ways towards each other which i find which startle me as well you know startle me like mum's thing did i just can't understand it really and i think that comes from my parents it's it seems to me that below the level of the events that happened to them, it should be possible for us to have the most incredibly civilised discourse. Um, and how long did it take to write the book? Or is it impossible to put a time on it because it's just something that's been in the works for such yeah. a long time, your entire life? Well, look, I, I wonder very openly whether this book would have happened if my normal schedule had gone ahead. And one of the things that I have been thinking about ever since is you know was i utilizing my time because uh, correctly so there are a number of things that i think are difficult when you are uh, when you have a portfolio life um w one of them is um to not to organize yourself so that you spend an awful lot of your working day simply traveling between your jobs not adding value to anybody because all you're doing is traveling um mm. and um another is accepting a lot of meetings just because 
you don't do one thing you can accept a lot of meetings some many of much of which don't add value either um and what happened with covid is that those both those two things stopped and i was amazed by how much um time that left me i worked very hard during covid but most importantly i worked incredibly productively uh, because suddenly i wasn't traveling um you know I, I'm based in three places in Stamford Bridge, London Bridge and Westminster Bridge. Um, and um, I can be and I, if I'm not careful, you know, I try and organise my life so that I concentrate my Chelsea meetings, for example, on one day a week. Um, I mean, there are other days when I have to do stuff, but I try and concentrate it. Um, otherwise, I just end up travelling all the time. So with, with this, I spent um, it was probably four years since I, between the time when I first thought, right, I'm definitely going to do this book. And I agreed that with my agent and the time when the book appeared in a bookshop. Um, there was obviously the pre preparing a proposal, um, but there was also um, doing a lot of reading so that I actually understood the history of the Second World War properly. My mother had been in Belson, but did I really understand what that was? Well, not really, no, not until I read about it. Um, the Gulag is a phrase, but I didn't know what it was either, even though I knew my grandfather had been in it. Um, so even for someone who, who had a kind of history and knew the background a bit, um, I was amazed by what I didn't know. So while I was doing lots of other things, I began to do reading of that kind what 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 you know reading a book on the vonze conference um where the final solution was agreed reading a, a book about uh reading reading i spent a month reading books about Lvov, um, which is where my father was brought up even though i only have about three lot you know three paragraphs probably of that research in the in the piece itself so uh that was the background and then and then i wrote a proposal and then covid happened um and when COVID happened, it enabled me to stay at home. Uh, and in all the time that I was otherwise wasting traveling around or meeting PhD students who wanted to interview people who'd lost elections and thought I was a good person to interview, um, that I I, um, I decided that, that, you know, so I didn't do that. Um, and I was able then to sit down where I am now and go through an amazingly large number of family documents that have been left me. And I went through them one by one by one with every line very carefully and then i and then i set myself a task a thousand words a day uh four days a week the reason for four days a week is i wanted to leave the day that i wrote my column yeah uh which is actually now also the day that we record the how to win election on my podcast i wanted to leave the, the um basically tuesdays where i didn't have to write a thousand words on anything else yeah. and then the other days of the week i'd write a thousand words and that worked well and how I'm just so intrigued about how you kind of pull all these things together. I mean, how does, if you were giving advice to someone who's thinking of writing a memoir, even if it's not for publication, like how do you go about sort of structuring something like that? What advice would you give to someone? Sure. Well, so it helped me it, doing the structure of the story was the first thing that I did. So I had, I knew going into it, I had a particular structural problem. My mother was arrested at the age of 10 on the 20th of June 1943. My father was arrested at the age of 10, but that meant he was arrested in April the 13th, 14th actually, April the 14th, uh, 1940. By the time my mother was arrested, my father had been to um, taken to the state collective farm, then gone to Semi-Palatinsk, where they nearly froze there as well, uh, joined the Anders army, crossed uh, the Caspian Sea, gone to Iran, uh, and eventually to Palestine. So all of that had happened before my mother was even arrested. Uh, and I worried about how to um, structure it. But of course, there were lots of things that happened to my mother while my, fa while my father was going through that because the Nazis had invaded and all that. So I sat down and spent a lot of time working about how I would pace the book through the various stories mm. and also um, how I would, you know, one of the things that I did in my very first draft was that i i was giving away the end of various family stories um just at the big you know casually and one of the things that i've learned in journalism as well don't you hold back your material the material is gold you have to spread it out you have to and and i i i watched um something called masterclass with aaron sorkin um and 
he was just talking about the story and there was nothing specific that he told me but just that immersing myself in the idea of how to tell stories made me think well hang on a minute I'm not actually pacing this story correctly so I spent a lot I didn't do, write anything until I'd really got the structure of the whole story and I know other you know I, know, I think that's that's also true of Robert Harris, you know, who's a friend of mine who does, you know, the, the, who's a brilliantly successful novelist. He also does that. Some people just write and let, you know, the characters or whatever go, I could not have done that. And I don't think this book would have worked like that. You had to be, I had to work very hard on the structure. And how many hours do you think you've spent on publicity? Because that is interesting. It's similar with a podcast, right? Like, recording the content is one thing, and then actually, sort of, the time spent on distribution is extraordinary. Is one of my reflections of doing yeah. this for three years. But how much time do you think you've spent on book publicity? Right. Difficult. I, I was. There was a period where I, because of the book, but also because of Chelsea. To be fair, um, I found myself and and some residual. Because the times thing, the times that it rarely happens in the evening. So I sometimes things as well. I found myself literally out every single night. So I was leaving the house here, usually take my son to the station at kind of seven twenty or seven thirty, and I didn't come back until eleven mm. almost every day, day after day after day. And then often on the weekend there'd be a football match, which I love to go to, but obviously I've got also job, you know, also tasks related to that so it can be tiring even though it's amazing um and and a real privilege um and I, that became a bit much so i i, I for the first time I, I i here's my dilemma that i've had for ages and it's been coming up upon me for a long time which is that i, I don't really want to say no to people who would like me to come and talk or um appear on their podcast <laughs> um or um uh, the uh, or or you know particularly people i like or admire and lots of people like that uh and so i but i've reached a point i, I suddenly realized where i simply actually physically can't and i was yeah. still doing that uh, so i um i had this brilliant bit of advice which was given to me by howell james who was john major's private secretary also had a, he's got his own he's has his own agency he worked also for big banks and he worked for um capital radio various things he's an amazing guy and he once i was complaining to him that i was quite busy and he said only when you get, get an invitation uh, imagine this invitation was tomorrow uh if it was tomorrow, would you feel it was a good use of your time? And would you want to say yes to it? Um, and uh, I found that really, really useful. Uh, I've ignored it too much. Now I've finally realised I just have to say, have to do that. So I've begun to turn down more things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to have to say no, though, right? What's the What, what was the most surprising thing that you learned about the Second World War in the, in the research for the book? Because... You, we all think we know a lot about it, you know, studying it in school, et cetera, et cetera. But what was the thing that surprised you most? Well, first of all, I didn't understand what Belson was. Uh, so understanding that Belson was an exchange camp rather than an extermination camp, uh, that was really, really, um, in, you know, improved my insight into what my mother's experience had been and to why that camp collapsed in the way that it did and um, why it's a symbol in the way that it is. Um, I had not understood that. Then the other thing that I learned, which I I didn't really know, I didn't understand about Soviet collective farms and who worked on them and and um, people's experience. And, you know, lots of people don't know, and I, I was among them. Hundreds of thousands of Poles were deported to do this work in an attempt to, to destroy the Polish uh, leadership. Um, so um, I think people who read my book will be will think to my, themselves um, that my mother's story is an extraordinary version of the Holocaust story, but they know about the Holocaust. Um, they will then find my father's story, which frankly is just a standard version, though he did survive it, obviously, of something that happened to hundreds of thousands of people that people just don't know anything about. I guess tell us a bit about for those that haven't read the book that that story about the sort of eastern side of the war that doesn't get yeah. reported on. Because you talk about it in the conclusion, and it's sure. very powerful, as so, you were saying. Absolutely. So, so yeah. So, so the the the, the Nazi. There are a number of reasons why the Nazi story is a lot better known. One of the reasons being that they obviously lost, and the Soviets won. That 
protected the Soviets from um, scrutiny and everything that happened in the Nuremberg trials. My grandfather was um, very much involved in the Nuremberg trials, providing evidence on the Nazis, but the Soviets were the prosecutors and all of those crimes that the Nazis committed, they committed too. Um, so uh, I think that was, um, you know, that was kind of very interesting to find out. Um, what the, what the, the way I've put it is that the, the Nazis arrested all the Jews, some of whom were shopkeepers, and the Soviets arrested all the shopkeepers, some of whom were Jews. Uh, and my father was the subject of this latter um, expulsion. They, they had two, I think, reasons for doing it. The first was it was a way of suppressing dissent. They, 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 the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact meant they took over Eastern Poland, the Soviets, and they uh, had rigged elections, effectively. I mean, you can see this pattern now. They had rigged elections, integrated the Soviet, the Lvov into become Soviet Ukraine uh, from being Eastern Poland, um, and they could then do what they liked with the population. And um, in fact, the man who was in charge of that came and lived opposite my dad. You could, out of my dad's bedroom window, you could see his house, and that was Khrushchev, uh, who's obviously known uh, for his leadership later. Um, the, the, so one aim was to, to suppress the dissent. So they obviously my grandfather, being a very wealthy man, a city councillor, he could be a subject of dissent. But also the families, they deported the families hundreds and, or thousands of miles to, uh, to these uh, state collective farms. Uh, and many of them died along the way or would die eventually. Uh, but here's the other reason they did that. Uh, it was a sort of... Uh, I jokingly call it a kind of Soviet form of leveling up, right? They wanted to populate the interior with people. Mm. So while they were waiting for these people, these potential dissidents to die, uh, and they didn't care if they did, um, they'd be quite useful farmers. And in fact, later, when the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact um, falls apart because Hitler invades the Soviet Union, my my grandmother, in fact, both my grandparents are then told, my, my, my grandfather, mother and my grandfather on my father's side, are both told by their people who imprison them, you should stay here as a free citizen because you can help us farm. You know, don't yeah. go anywhere else. There's no food there, which was also true. Um, and uh, it was, of all the things that my grandmother decides to do, I think one of the most courageous is deciding to leave this state collective farm in the middle of nowhere uh, to go to Semipalatinsk itself, you know, three days by horse and cart, um, where she has no no money and no accommodation. She ends up sleeping on the street with my dad. Um, the uh, That was incredibly courageous of them. Yeah, completely. No, it's a, a, it really is an amazing book. And for someone who studied that period a lot, it, there was a lot that I learned from it and it was um yeah it was pretty incredible to kind of think about being faced with some of those decisions and the decisions they uh they took um one of the things that i wanted to talk about as well which i think will be of a lot of interest to people is is the job that you mentioned earlier of being a non-exec director at chelsea and just what yeah. that kind of involves and what kind of your responsibilities are i mean you touched on match day there i mean that might be quite an interesting place to start on it about what are the responsibilities well i'll tell you let me so this this came about um because i'd worked with jonathan goldstein who's todd bowley's business partner and um todd and he uh felt that uh, they were trying to take over the club they had a lot of good plans for it but they wanted to be sure they did it with rather than against the fans. Um, and um, they therefore it was important to them to have people on the board who supported Chelsea. And I had done since I was six or seven. So this amazing opportunity um, came to me. Um, I, I guess I've got three or four things that I do. Um, uh, one is uh, the kind of normal uh, job of a non-executive director, um, ensuring that... Um, yeah, you know, robust safeguarding procedures and uh, that we're financially solvent and those kind of things. Um, and uh, obviously into that will falls also our sporting uh, success. Uh, I'm not the owner and I'm not a sporting director. Um, and that's they're the people that deal mainly with those kind of decisions. But obviously I'm uh, a part of it to some extent. Um, 
Then the second thing I've done is taken over Chelsea's uh, charitable foundation. We'll say taken it over. I've become the chairman of that. Um, this is really, uh, we've got lots of great plans for that, and I'm really excited by it. Um, Chelsea have done lots of great work in that space from combating racism through to uh, incredible social work, helping young uh, people and using the power of football to do that. Um, and um, then the other the other uh, role I've got is that I'm something called the nominated board level executive board level officer uh, and Enblo. It's everything has to have an acronym um, for uh, for fan engagement. Uh, so uh, one of the things that we promised during the bid process was that we would uh, be pioneers in terms of fan consultation. Um, and um, the Premier League's got a framework asking each club to provide somebody who has, a, who has the responsibility for that, and that is me. Um, so uh, I, I've, uh, you know, but when I mention, you know, but one of my responsibilities, which is kind of amusing in a, a funny way, if you, it's amusing if you're a Chelsea fan, one of the stipulations in my contract uh, as a, a, a director of Chelsea Holdings uh, PLC is that I, um, sorry, not PLC, limited, um, that I uh, was, is that I um, be a, uh, that I ensure that I'm, I, I, I'm present at sufficient number of matches, which is not an onerous um, condition of any contract. Um, but, it, you know, my, my opinion is that if, when a club visits Chelsea or when Chelsea visits another club, uh, we ought to uh, make the uh, best possible impression we can, be as friendly and as engaging as we can, um, and that that requires you put an effort in. Um, and... Um, I think that's important for the kind of instrumental reason, you know, that we want to have good relations with people we may trade with and with whom we share lots of interests, um, you know, within the Premier League or um, if it's a cup game within the league in general. Um, so good relations with those people are important, but it's also important on a human basis. Certainly it is to me. I want them to go away feeling, um, you know, which club we really liked visiting that was, ch or was really nice when they visited was Chelsea. You know, I think that's important. Um, when was the first time you visited Stamford Bridge? So I must've been seven. So it's interesting. It le it link it leaks. The reason why I say it must've been, so I was taken, um, I was kind of so young. I've got. I've actually got a bit of a hazy view about which which exact game was my first game, which is slightly embarrassing. Everyone always knows what their first game was. Um, I, I remember seeing watching Chelsea play Liverpool at home, and it must have been nineteen seventy one or so. Um, and I and I, but I, I kind of think maybe there was one game before that. But anyway, I I was um, seven years old when I became a Chelsea fan. My dad had no interest in football at all, and again, that was a little bit his DNA. His 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 interests were, you know, the progressive rabbis of Warsaw of the nineteenth century. I mean, genuinely, that was what he was interested in. Uh, he didn't. He wasn't interested in football at all. He very kindly took me to some Hendon games, but he 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 didn't have any interest in it. And I became a football fan because my friend Martin Levine, his parents had a shop in Chelsea, and so. They took me to my first game, uh, and um, I just remember loving it always and thinking to myself, having a season ticket wouldn't that would be the most glorious thing that you could imagine. Obviously, it was beyond my imagination, and indeed remained beyond my imagination until about ten minutes before it happened that I'd ever be a director of of the club. And what was the best part of the job? Well, I'm really, I get a lot of satisfaction over anything that we can do to improve Chelsea and um, working on the foundation is one of those things, just alongside all these incredible people um, that are doing such great work. But also, um, uh, you know, the engagement with the fan groups um, mm. from whom I'm constantly learning a lot, but hopefully they feel, you know, we had a, we had a a fan advisory board only the other day and I, I, I remember thinking, God, this is actually a big step forward in the management of a club. It's really it's really helpful. The exchanges between the executives who were very impressive and the and the fan board who were also impressive was really exciting. And as you know, uh, Jimmy, I think one of the things that I learned 
one of the things that I learned that you probably already know from the fan uh, panel of, the, of Tracy Crouch's review, I was just blown away by how every club has got really incredibly impressive fans with such knowledge and insights to offer. And we're learning all the time. So that is very satisfying. But, you know, I, I, I won't pretend that it's not also satisfying to kind of be on the team plane and, um, uh, you know, which I, I am at occasionally. And, um, you know, I remember... Well, when when um, you know we went when we played Real Madrid and just going to burn about, it's just it's just been very all those kind of things that a fan would be excited by. I don't pretend that I'm not excited by them. I am. And has it um, dulled the when, when somebody takes their passion and turns it into a sort of professional capacity? One of the things I've learned on this podcast is it can sort of dull that that passion for it. Has that happened at all? No. <laughs> no, no, it hasn't at all. My wife, my wife said, I can't believe the way you monetize your hobbies because obviously, you know, my great passions. Honestly, my great passions in life, um, are, are politics. I love. I mean, apart from my family, right? Um, you know, yeah. which is just amazing and important to my uh, to my life, and I've always been so lucky with it. But even then, I've written a book about my family. Um, so, um, uh, uh, you know, if you think about it, it's my family. Um, New newspaper journalism, and in particular the Times, from a very young age, um, Chelsea Football Club, um, and I've managed to kind of make uh, professional, uh, be involved in a professional capacity in all those things, I, I, and and politics. Um, and the only the only one that's missing there is the Beatles. With I haven't made, I haven't managed to monetize that. I've written some articles about them, but hasn't quite happened. I did interview George Martin once, so I suppose I touched on even that, but. I, I, it is, um, it hasn't dulled it at all. With Chelsea, I think, I was thinking this the other day, because as you're possibly aware, you know, we, the last two weeks or three weeks and everything in particular, we, we haven't had the best results. Um, and I, I've been really disappointed. And it's made me feel really, you know, you can feel it inside when you don't do well. Um, but I've always felt like that. I do feel an additional sense of responsibility. You know, the one thing that I think we're all, everyone in the ownership and directors team is we don't want to let the fans down. Uh, we're doing what we think are the best things. And when what you think is the right thing to do doesn't work, you feel bad about it. Obviously you do. Um, so yeah. um, it probably has added a sort of degree of tension to it, which is greater. But like any fan, I always hated it if we lost. Yeah. What what surprised you most about it all? Well, that's interesting. So sometimes I've learned from the uh, from the sporting directors um, that I'm watching too much. Of, uh, so this is the thing about watching. I've learned I'm watching from on on the ball. Um, uh, secondly, something that of course should have occurred to me and, and didn't. Lots of people who work for a football club don't support that club. Mm. Right, um, because they they've got jobs in the football industry and they've got this one at the moment, and um, they obviously want the club to be successful because they're involved in it in every way. But then they don't support it on the football side, which I find really odd. I mean, I I find it quite difficult, I think, but they obviously don't, and you know, overcome it in really a very professional way. But it's an industry. Um, Another thing that had not properly occurred to me. So everyone talks about how football's a business, and they or and they, you know when it shouldn't be. That's you know the kind of fan view. And yeah. then and then the other thing that um, people think is um, football is um, you know football's like a religion, which it also also is, right? Um, but what I think people what I didn't expect was how much it is like a club. So the thing that I didn't, for example, know. When we went to Champions League games, and I think it's true in all the European competitions, you, you meet with the directors of the other club for dinner the night before. And then everyone gives out exchanges, little gifts, and there are friendly speeches that, um, you know, toasts are proposed and all that sort of stuff. And that had never occurred to me. And of course it happens. There's an awful lot of, there's an, awful, an element of club in, in, you know, with a sort of capital C about it, which I, you know, as I said, I understood that both the business bit and the incredible emotional attachment that it's much more, um, you know, Bill Shankly was right about that, you know. Yeah. It's, it's more important than that. 
What other things might surprise people? I mean, that is, I didn't know that. But funnily enough, Derby County haven't had that many European away trips. But um, what uh, what other things happened that people might well, appreciate? I, I think a lot of times when you read, um, I, I've learned to sort of follow the um, the business of the club in a more um, rigorous way. So, for example, mm-hmm. when you read about transfers, all the transfers are about the fee. And a crucial point that was missing is it's the wages, um, that the finances, finance of the um, the finance of the of the, the club is uh, relates to the wages, not just how much you pay for players. And I hadn't really, I guess, hadn't completely appreciated that from outside as much as I um, should have done. Um, I I think that. Um, the other thing is, you know, all of us who are watching the game, from the manager right through to the directors, um, you can't, you know, I'm a, I'm as much at mercy of when of Everton scoring against Chelsea as any fan in the stadium, right? Um, you, you don't have any more control of it than anybody else. And I think that's, you know, kind of when you're just watching it, you sort of think, well, surely somebody ought to go and do something about this. And, you know, people are trying to do something about it, but it doesn't mean you necessarily score. Yeah, that's fair. What are the um, what, what are the kind of similarities that you've spotted between football and politics now working in both of them? Oh, so the big thing about it is, I think, um, there's in all... Um, so there are a number of things that you spot in politics. People are very loss-averse. In other words, um, when you change anything, um, people feel the change very keenly, um, more keenly than perhaps the benefit from the change. Um, yeah. And I, 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 that's very true in politics. It's really important. And it's the reason why it's so hard in low-growth environments for political parties, uh, because when they move money to a new group of people, they have to move it from someone, and the person they move it from is usually more annoyed than the person they move it to is pleased. Um, and I think that's also true in clubs. Um, the other thing I've learned is is the importance of something that's all very important in politics too, the insider-outsider problem. Okay, so you have a limited number of seats uh, in a game, um, and we've got many, many more fans. I mean, you know, multiples of hundreds of thousands more fans than we can fit in the stadium. Um, and um, you obviously want to uh, satisfy the fans that are in the stadium, but you want new people to come and see Chelsea. Um, and uh, you know, uh, an absolutely classic example of the insider-outsider problem is the fact that Chelsea's game has been moved to uh, Christmas Eve. Not actually, by the way, the choice of Chelsea. It was just the way that it happened. This was this happened because the TV yeah. thought this was an attractive. Uh, game and we're we're flattered and pleased to be on the television uh, and have our game on television. Obviously, having our game on television means hundreds, of, you know, millions of people who wouldn't be able to see the game um, are now able to see it, or they're able to see it more easily because some people obviously do find ways of watching games that are at three o'clock on a Saturday when there's a TV blackout. Um, but this game's now been moved to a Sunday. However, there are also three thousand people um, who are going to go to this game. And um, by the way, it's no point thinking, well, they could just not go because for lots of fans, um, it's a kind of commitment, right? They go to, to the away game and we're so incredibly beholden and, and pleased that people go to our, uh, give our team support away from home. It's incredibly important to the result and uh, to the vibe of the club. So we really, they're very important people to us, the away travelling fans. Um, but the, but we have to be. Um, but at the same time, um, you have these two completely different reactions. Uh, one were the people who could imagine themselves travelling, and Christmas Eve is a pain, um, and they had to yeah. then explain to their partners uh, that what they weren't going to be there. And then, um, but then the other people were reacting. Well, it's great. So you have that problem the whole time, and you have you know it's the same thing with I don't know um, work on the railways, right, where the union pushes up this. Uh, the money and it has an impact on everyone who pays uh, to go to work on the railways and also uh, in terms of how many jobs there are on the railways as well so it's an insider outsider problem there uh, yeah, it's great it's just 
a couple more to finish with. What advice would you give to somebody wanting to kind of get into journalism, wanting to get a job at the, at the Times? What changes have you noticed in the industry over the decades? And yeah, what would be your advice to someone? I would say two pieces of advice. One of which is an eternal one, and the other of which is um, kind of relatively new. So the eternal one is um, people think that it, the ability to write is what newspapers are looking for uh, and it's important to be able to write clean prose and um, but we do edit the paper uh, and not every journalist we have is equally good at expressing themselves uh, what you have to be in order to work at the times is um, both knowledgeable and able to find out knowledge in areas that you don't know about um, so we are we are supplying to our readers knowledge of what happens and we look we look for sufficient expertise sure some people in the paper work in areas where they previously didn't know anything and they become then experts um but it's i think you are even if it's uh you know like one of my brilliant colleagues hillary rose who writes i think really really clever funny uh coll uh, pieces what she brings is you know kind of a an attitude uh, uh way of looking at the world which is unique uh so it's so it, think what can you bring to the to people that they don't know um, first, as opposed to simply how do I express myself? Yeah, that would be my first thing. Um, and then the piece of advice that's more current is I, I do think being able to make uh, video and social media content is going to become more and more important mm -hmm. for journalists and knowing how to how to develop that. Um, you know, it's I I've tried to stay on top of that um, as well as I can, although um, I'm. I'm very strong on Twitter, um, but I'm much weaker on TikTok or Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. And they um, are always of projecting your copy and getting people to read the paper. Yeah, it's probably going to become more important uh, in football jobs as well. I always think it's partly turning into media companies in their own right as well. Um, there, yeah. Two final, there's one lovely line in the, in the book, which I think kind of relates to that knowledge bit, which is um, a letter... Um, in the exchange chapter and it's from Greta and it says the greatest happiness in life is for every thinking per person is the development of their personality I just thought that sort of encapsulated such a, a lovely kind of phrase of one's development of life and how to sort of think like how how do you think about that kind of development of personality yourself I mean you've you've taken on so many different jobs which kind of make up such a big part of our personality. I would just love your kind of reflections on that. Yeah, I think I think um, my wife said something to me. It's now probably about twenty, fifteen years ago, maybe, um, and she said, "No one's looking that hard, Dan." Um, and what she means, and I think this is true, is that everyone, people, particularly, I think, in the social media era, everyone psychologically they're so concerned with their reputation and what other people think about what they're doing and uh, how other people will regard it and how it'll go down in history and I remember David Owen and he always thought this was very funny he once said um he thought that history would judge what he'd done you know kindly and somebody said I think history will have other better things to do um and um I, I thought that was a um, brilliant comment and is probably true right so what you live and what you do now um and the way you do it to and how you enjoy yourself that is it right that's that's what i think yeah. um and i think you know it's important to me that i don't know i make the world a nicer place for everybody who has any contact with me to live in and um live by my life i'm sure some people think that the way that i think we can make the world better is horrendous and you know i'm making it much worse and other people will think i'm right um but the most important thing to understand is not you know you're only making a tiny impact anyway um and even you know i've been lucky enough to i don't know to have a best-selling book and to work on a national newspaper to be on television and all those kind of things and and, and the impact is new you know if i'm completely honest the impact nugatory and it doesn't in it's and it's i think it's so important to understand that because uh you know, you've got to live and enjoy your life because one day you won't have it anymore. So um, I, I, that's the way I view it. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'm so 
happy about with Chelsea is just um, what an amazing thing to do, right? Forget yeah. all the kind of, you know, what it means and whether anyone else will be impressed by it and how it looks on my CV and all those kind of stuff. It's just incredible. Uh, and that was my final question was, what's your most favourite or most memorable Chelsea moment? There so I think every Chelsea fan will will definitely say um, the twenty twelve Champions League final, yeah, um, uh, unquestionably. But I, you know, I, 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 you know, I Frank Lampard is a total hero to me, um, and uh, you know, one of the great joys of the last five to ten years has been get, getting to know Frank Lampard, somebody that I thought I'd never even meet. Um, and uh, that is, um, so I kind of think um, the moment should really relate to uh, Frank. And so I've got a slightly odd uh, memory, which was of Chelsea um, being behind against Stoke City when we desperately needed to win. And there were three minutes left and we scored twice in three minutes with him scoring the second goal. And uh, that is an incredibly uh, great, great uh, memory for me. Um, so uh, I, I think he's uh, an ama- he was an amazing player, and he's actually, by the way, you know, he's like, you know, it says never meet your heroes. Well, I, I've met him, and he's great. <laughs> that, that is one where it is totally worth meeting them. Yeah, no, uh, well, he did a pretty good job at Derby County as well. So I'm a, a big fan as well. Uh, shame you pin- <laughs> you pinched him from us, but I, uh, I kind of understand that. <laughs> that move uh danny thanks so much for coming on uh jimmy's jobs of the future it's really been an absolute uh privilege and a pleasure to have you on i think we could yeah, we could have done an episode into almost any one of your sort of five or six uh jobs but uh no it's been great to uh been great to discuss them all thanks it's really really good to go on this podcast because actually you've asked me questions and had discussions i've never had with uh, with anyone else or on any other media so uh, i completely understand why this uh, podcast is uh, has become so successful mm-hmm.